Good morning, and I really appreciated that introduction. That was good, helpful. So uh, we're getting ready to study ordinances in instruction class, and I decided I should talk about ordinances here in the sermon uh, because uh, I want to address two issues. Uh, the one is the, uh, there's been a process of development of the idea of seven, and uh, they took of seven that Mennonites have affirmed. And I want to talk about that development, and, and the second item, uh, since uh, 1525, uh, Anabaptists, Mennonites, have uh, struggled to um, maybe the word is articulate a what I would call a coherent uh, biblical and practical view of the connection between the symbols in an ordinance and, and well, maybe the term would be, and the grace that is present when they are observed. And uh, maybe, maybe you're sitting here thinking that Brother Milo's there is crazy and uh, whatever else, and I don't know what he's talking about, and this is ridiculous, and it's, ri it's going to be a ridiculous sermon. Um, but uh, these, are, these are important issues, and they do matter, and they have practical implications. And I'm going to try to talk about that. I have my sermon written, and uh, the reason for that is I want to be as simple as I can be and as clear. And uh, I hope I don't read it all, but I do have it written. So in the beginning here, I want to say that I have a struggle. I'm, I'm, I actually have feel quite scared to even preach on this, this subject. But I have a struggle. And I thought maybe I just need to start by being transparent about my struggle. Uh, I have a struggle with my conscience. Um, my conscience struggles if I don't talk about these kind of issues, and it struggles if I do. So on the one hand, uh, my conscience struggles quite a bit with having responsibility in church life to teach beliefs and practices that, uh, that are based, if they are, based on interpretations of Scripture or history that I do not think are consistent or... Um, sound, or maybe true, or maybe I think they 
I wonder if they are not. They seem to me to be intellectually inconsistent. So my conscience struggles with that because, because um, because I can't handle uh, feeling like maybe I've been dishonest. Okay. And then on the other hand, my conscience struggles with um, trying to speak about things that I think might be disruptive to people. And in subjects like this, there is no way this morning that I can cover all the important, pertinent issues or speak to all the ins and outs related to this, this discussion. So I feel bad about that. That bothers me too. Uh, but I can't. There's not enough time. I don't know if I'm able. Uh, so anyway, I feel kind of caught in all of this. Just telling you. Uh, also, I'm still in the introduction. Um, I feel like I need to say, and I, and I mean this uh, very much, that although I have concerns about some of these questions and issues, um, I do believe that what we call our seven ordinances, I do believe they are taught in Scripture. And uh, they are um, as important as everything else that is taught in Scripture that, that we are called to obey and practice. So I'm not, I am not trying to get rid of any ordinance, okay? The practice of commands in Scripture. So the, the seven uh, practices that I'm referring to are baptism, the Lord's Supper, um, foot washing, the holy kiss, anointing with oil, the headship veiling, and marriage. Uh, I will only talk uh, at the end. I'm going to try to say some things about the connection between the symbols um, and grace involved in the practice of an ordinance. And I will use only the Lord's Supper and baptism uh, in that, and partly because of time. Some of the material that I'm going to share is quoted, and I'm not, I'm not sure that I will always say when I'm quoting Uh, so, starting here with the historical development, I have tried in this material to be historically accurate. So, sacraments and ordinances in the New Testament, whatever word you want to use, uh, in, in the earliest days of the New Testament church, the church was a family of spiritual 
brothers and sisters who gathered freely in public spaces and in, in each other's homes. And uh, I think we all know these things. There were no benches, no pulpits, no church buildings, no hymn books. There wasn't even New Testament scripture. No weekly monologue-style sermons. Uh, I'll say to passive audiences like this is. Only I hope you're not passive. I hope you're engaged. No Sunday school classes. I mean, that's amazing that somehow they survived without that. Okay? Uh, no pastor's handbooks. Um, even no written membership standards. And I'm, I'm not saying that because I think all those things are bad. I'm just saying this is the truth of it. And the, ch the church was a diverse and imperfect body that was unifi unified not by uh, institutional structures, but by mutual love and spirit-guided devotion. And I'm quoting here. Uh, to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. That's Acts 2. Um, and, and when I think about, when I read in Acts and think about the facts, <clears throat> I could almost, almost wish that we were back there rather than here because it sounds so dynamic and engaging. The picture we get in the book of Acts is unstructured gatherings of believers in spontaneous, dynamic community life meetings and activities such as baptism and the Lord's Supper uh, happened organically. I don't know what words to use for some of this. They happened organically, spontaneously, as a natural part of believers being gathered together, and they were not reserved for special or formal occasions. They just happened. Uh, believers participated in the Lord's Supper whenever they were together. I think that's what you see in Acts. Even several times a week, as part of a full shared meal, and the Lord's Supper was viewed as a celebration. And uh, I was studying yesterday for the Easter sermon I, I was supposed to have. And, and I was just struck with how bad off the disciples were when Christ was crucified. How, how much they, they viewed this as a total disaster and the end of their lives and what in the world are we going to do now? And then, lo and behold, on the third day he raised from the dead and they just about, they couldn't believe it and they were, what in the world has happened? So why wouldn't they celebrate this occasion every time they got together to talk about all the crazy thing that has happened, the stuff that's happened here in the last three years. Well, that's what they did. 
Baptism was viewed as an initiation of a newborn Christian into Christ and into the believers that were present. In the New Testament, mention is made of other community activities as well, such as community of goods, speaking in tongues, ordination, anointing with oil. But uh, none of these are, and I don't know what word to use, I have the word institutionalized or commanded of all believers, I don't know, or talked about the way baptism and the Lord's Supper were. Uh, also, I, I feel like I need to clarify that although the King James uses the word ordinances in 1 Corinthians 11 too, to talk about uh, where Paul talks about he commends them for keeping the ordinances that I have delivered unto you. Uh, Paul does not mean what we mean when we use the term ordinance. Uh, Paul, the word ordinance there, he's using the same word that Jesus used when he condemned the man-made uh, human traditions. That was, that's the King James word of the scribes and Pharisees. So the, the word ordinances in 1 Corinthians 11.2 refers to practices handed down or delivered, traditions or instructions uh, of a wider scope than ordinances in the limited sense. And I didn't make that up. That was a quote from Vine's expository Greek dictionary. Okay, developments from 100 to 1150 AD. This is moving along at great speed. It needs to, too. So, as Gentile pagans were converted um, soon, maybe 100, 200, 300, uh, a period of instruction was introduced prior to baptism. By the end of the second century, the Greek term, and I don't know if I can pronounce it right, but mysterion, and the Latin term sacramentum were being used to refer to a variety of religious activities like use of the Lord's Prayer, or reading of Old Testament Scripture during public worship. And after about 1000 AD, these terms were used primarily to refer to what became known as the seven Roman Catholic sacraments. And uh, I believe Peter Lombard may have been the first writer to specify seven and only seven sacraments, and this was about 1150. So I want to comment a little bit about the term sacrament. Uh, it was used by the medieval Catholic Church to mean 
the visible, and this is somewhat technical, but the visible form of an invisible grace. And as time passed, the visible form, such as water or bread or wine, became more and more necessary for the appropriation of the grace that the symbol represented. Because the reason it became more and more important is because, according to Catholic dogma, the symbol or visible sign conveys the grace which it represents. So the grace is, uh, in Catholic dogma, the grace is connected to or present in the symbol. The seven Catholic sacraments were infant baptism, which they said removed the guilt of Adam's original sin, confirmation, which provided an opportunity for a person baptized as an infant to confirm what was done for them at baptism without them knowing, the Eucharist or Lord's Supper, and the view there was transubstantiation, which was the view that the bread and wine are actually changed into the body and blood of Christ, confession, uh, which uh, took care of post-baptismal sins, marriage, which was called a vocation, that is, that through marriage, one is incorporated more fully into the life of the church. And I'm sorry, I'm just saying things here, and I can't explain them. Don't have time. Maybe don't understand them all either. Okay, so marriage was viewed as a vocation. And then ordination um, or joining the orders was viewed as a vocation for unmarried people. And then the last rite for extreme unction or anointing of the sick uh, was practiced uh, to ensure holiness before death. So those were the Roman Catholic sacraments. Okay, the Anabaptist understanding of the sacraments or ordinances from 1525 to 1890. So, uh, Anabaptism, Mennonitism, I'm sorry for using the word ism, but I don't know what else to do. It began with the illegal baptism of 15 adult believers upon confession of faith on January 21, 1525 in Zurich, Switzerland. So this initial adult baptism was rooted in, and, and I want to say, please listen to what I'm saying. 
<clears throat> this initial adult baptism was rooted in the belief that an inner spiritual experience is more valid than the external rite of infant baptism initiated by one's parents or by the government. And it took place, this initial baptism took place completely apart from any organized, established church. Uh, and the, the baptism took place as a result of these 15 men baptizing each other. Uh, what we now lump together as the Anabaptists, Mennonites, was a diverse, evolving, and sometimes disconnect, disconnected set of church renewal movements. And uh, the interesting thing to me is that these renewal movements Uh, among people who were reacting to Roman Catholicism or the Reformed reacting to them or reacting to Lutherans, um, these renewal movements took place in various geographical areas and often with no awareness of something going on somewhere else. They were very spontaneous, and I don't know, I don't know what you would say about all that except somehow God was working and things were happening. People didn't know about, they didn't have cell phones and they didn't have email. And they didn't get more than 10 miles from home their whole life. And they just didn't know. They did not know what was going on. At least not at first. So great variety persisted among these various renewal movements. Uh, for example, Variety, both in the Anabaptist terminology about ordinances. They got called sacraments, witnesses, ceremonies, sign, ordinance. And also great variety in the number listed. So the Protestant reformers, Lutherans, Calvin, Calvinists, no, they were reformed. Yes, they weren't Calvinists then. They rejected all the Roman sacraments except for baptism and the Lord's Supper. And the interesting thing is that that's basically what Anabaptists did too. Uh, and, and I think part of the reason for the reaction by all of these people, including Anabaptists, was... Um, what Anabaptists viewed as unbiblical Roman Catholic, the, Anab the, the um, unbiblical view that the Roman Catholic Church had of its sacraments. 
for this grand reaction. So no, no Anabaptist held to a list of ordinances that matches ours. None did. So I'm going to read a little bit here. This is quoted material. Uh, those Anabaptists who retained the term sacrament to describe the Lord's Supper and baptism or other marks of the church generally redefined it because of negative associations carried by the term. Pilgrim Marpeck was typical. He resorted to the term's ancient meaning as an oath of loyalty. At the same time, Marpeck showed a strong preference for the term ceremony, which he defined as any external ritual given by Christ to proclaim the gospel. His list of ceremonies included not only baptism and the Lord's Supper, but feet washing, preaching, the band, and acts of brotherly love. Hubmeyer and most Swiss brethren shared Marpeck's preference for the term ceremony, generally limiting its scope to baptism and the Lord's Supper. In the Dutch North German communities like Menelsheimus, Dirk Phillips, the marks of the church were most often called ordinances from the fact that Christ had ordained them. Uh, Dirk Phillips stipulates seven ordinances, and they were ordination, sacraments, feet washing, discipline, neighbor love, cross-bearing, suffering. The term sacraments in this list refers to communion and baptism, uh, which Dirk Phillips called signs. Without formally designating them as ordinances, the formative Mennonite confessions of faith all include marriage, ordination, feet washing, discipline, and neighborly love, which is often uh, placed in a category of non-resistance. Uh, these are presented as essential signs of how God orders the life of the church. In other words, there's a big discussion in the 16th century about what are the marks of a true church. And everybody, everybody was saying what they thought the marks of a true church are. And uh, so these are the marks of a true church. Um, this is the way a true church should be ordered by these activities. There has never been complete clarity in the Mennonite mind as to what status and meaning to give to the various ceremonies the church by which the church expresses its life. Um, a surprising variation exists not only in the number of ordinances practiced, but in their form. Okay, so Anabaptists, I'm just giving various thoughts here. 
Anabaptists saw themselves as returning to the New Testament church. Um, but, you know, it's like all of us are today, too. You know, don't, don't get too lofty-minded about about the wonderful things you are accomplishing by making radical changes. Don't get too, you know, carried away with the idea that you're doing this better than anybody else because, you know, well, that's pride, and generally that comes before a fall. Okay, so they saw themselves as returning to the New Testament church, but in reality they didn't fully do it. And I don't know that we can either, but maybe we haven't, you know. We can want to. So, for example, there's no evidence that early Anabaptists practiced anointing with oil for physical healing. They don't make much out of that or comment about it. Anabaptists had no set mode of baptism, nor did they always practice immediate baptism as it, as it is practiced in the New Testament. Anabaptists mentioned the Holy Kiss various times in their writing, but they gave it no extended treatment and no um, or unusual emphasis. Uh, and as for the women's bailing, uh, this point received no literary attention. Uh, I would say prior to 1900, and, and I'm going to say part of the reason for that, um, that's also true of uh, dress that there wasn't that much emphasis on dress prior to 1900. And, and the, the reason for not much comment about the women's veiling and about dress, I believe, is because in general society, everybody, all the women had their heads covered. And, and uh, everyone was dressing modestly. The issue was more finery. How much money are you spending on this clothing? And um, I think uh, even to this day, Amish tend to function this way, that you have one set of clothes and you do not have three different changes of different styles for different occasions because it's not necessary and it costs money and it's finery. So I'm just saying there are reasons for the no comments. <clears throat> Doesn't mean they didn't care about it, but it was not an issue like it was later. Uh, now I want to say this since I'm on this subject that uh, some of us maybe remember Andy Beverly from the 80s, 1980s. And I talked with his grandmother one time, more than once, but she told me one time that she had attended Paris Chapel when it was Methodist, like in 1910, when she was a child. 
and she told me that all the women had their head covered. So <clears throat> this, this was common uh, before, uh, I don't mean to be crass here, but before women's lit or whatever. <clears throat> in his book on infant baptism, Hubmeyer wrote, this is in 1525, I'm not speaking of church customs invented by man, rather do I speak of two ceremonies of Christ, that is, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Uh, since Anabaptists generally viewed ordinances as not containing saving grace, they attach little significance to their precise form, uh, such as whether baptism should be administered by pouring, sprinkling, or immersion. All of those happen. And whether in the Lord's Supper, wine or unfermented juice should be used. Yeah, these things were not an issue. Uh, the Dortmund Confession of Faith of 1632, which was probably the most influential of all Anabaptist confessions, uh, confirms this pattern of variety and difference. So on the one hand, uh, one reason why this confession came to be widely accepted among conservative Mennonite groups was because of its emphasis on discipline. Uh, and excommunication and shunning and emphasis on foot washing, uh, two articles that were not found in some of the other early confessions. Uh, in, in the Dork Confession, foot washing was featured in its own separate article uh, and marriage was too. And um, Yet this confession directly names the Lord's ordinances uh, as being two, baptism and the supper. And the holy kiss, the Christian women's failing and anointing with oil was not mentioned at all. So the transition from two ordinances to seven um, and I'm not trying to be critical here. I'm just trying to be honest about this is the history of it. To find the list of seven ordinances taught by conservative Mennonites today, you have to go to 1890s. And it began with uh, J.S. Kaufman, uh, who uh, in, in the wake or after, after a particularly long um, revival meeting in uh, Waterloo County, Ontario in 1891, he compiled and published uh, for the first time a four-page pamphlet entitled Fundamental Bible References. And under the heading Requirements for Obedience, Kaufman included ordinances, duties, and restrictions. And he listed these ordinances uh, with a short description and scriptural references, and he, they were as follows. 
He had one heading called principal ordinances, and uh, he included baptism with water, communion, and foot washing. And then he had a second ordinances category. I'm sorry, secondary ordinances. So he had principal ordinances and secondary. The secondary ordinances were prayer head covering for the women, greeting with the holy kiss, marriage, anointing with oil for the recovering, recovering of the sick. And uh, this is the earliest classification of ordinances into uh, these seven grouped together. It's also the first time that feet washing had been equated with baptism and the Lord's Supper. And the first time anointing with oil or the women's veiling had been called an ordinance. So then Daniel Kaufman, who was converted under Kaufman's preaching, J.S. Kaufman's last name is spelled C-O-F-F-M-A-N, and Daniel Kaufman's last name is K-A-U-F-F-M-A-N, not that it matters, but they were not related. He was, Daniel Kaufman was converted under Kaufman's preaching. He introduced and codified these seven same seven ordinances in 1914 in his book, Bible Doctrines. And uh, his goal, stated goal, was to strengthen and maintain the practice of these seven so they wouldn't get lost, and to make a clear distinction between Mennonites and other denominations. Um, so now I want to evaluate a little bit, make some comments. Uh, the New Testament evidence for seven ordinances. Um, I believe feet washing, headship, bailing for women. These are my personal comments. And marriage. Receive some instruction in the New Testament about how they should be observed and not just mention There's some instruction. Anointing with oil for healing receives somewhat less instruction, and the kiss of peace is mentioned several times but has no specific instruction about how it should be observed. And so I'm, I'm back to saying what I did in the beginning. I believe we should teach and practice all five of these in the same way that we should teach and practice other things taught in Scripture. But I do not see them as being on the same level in Scripture as the Lord's Supper and Baptism. And uh, someone made the comment to me when I made that kind of comment to them that... Uh, Maybe if you say that, people will think that they don't need to practice these other five. Well, I, th I think that is a problem. I think, I think one of the problems in that is apparently then what that means is the only way we feel compelled to do whatever the Bible commands is if is if we raise it to some high level, and and I don't know what. Uh, yes, I, I just want to beg us not to do that. It's not helpful. 
Um, so if, if we're going, I, th I think by raising the level of the five to the level of the two, we actually reduce the, the two in some ways. I do believe that. If we're going to call all seven of these ordinances, I believe we must at least say what J.S. Kaufman said, that there are two tiers. And that, that is how Mennonites have viewed these ordinances until the last hundred years. Now I want to talk a little about making ordinances merely symbols. And this is even more challenging than the other issue. So I believe the Mennonite Church has created a theological and practical problem for itself by insisting that the ordinances are merely symbols, even baptism and the Lord's Supper. On the one hand, as a result of reaction to the Roman Catholic insistence that grace is automatically present in and communicated to the recipients through the sacraments, no matter the condition of their hearts, Anabaptist Mennonites have insisted that grace is not present in or transmitted by the symbols in any way. And also, because of the revivalist movement beginning in 1890 by J.S. Kaufman and others, uh, modern Mennonites have adopted the modern Protestant view that conversion is a purely individual, private, matter unrelated to any church action, any church involvement, which means that each believer has unmediated, I'm using a technical term, it means that each believer has unmediated access to the grace of God through faith in Christ apart from any action of the church. But then on the other hand, Mennonites have maintained that the church is the bearer of grace and the church is important. And you have to be a member of a church or you're going to hell. I'm exaggerating a little. I'm trying to make a point. And my point is there are these two opposing views. The view that grace is accessed by the individual apart from any action of the church and the view that the church is the bearer of grace and absolutely essential for the spiritual health of a person. These two views clash in Mennonite belief and practice and don't really have any good resolution. And I believe this clash of views, this is me talking, it's just me talking. I believe this clash of views contributes to the ambivalence Mennonites feel about the church and the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper. And uh, I was trying to think, what is the basic question here? And I'm going to say the question we need to seek an answer for is this. What is the intersection of grace and faith or grace and symbols in the ceremonies of baptism and the Lord's Supper? So I'm going to try to say a few things here. I'm running over time. <clears throat> okay, in relation to baptism, 
I believe scripture clearly teaches that Christ's atonement, I mean by that Christ's death and resurrection, is reproduced in the one believing. I think scripture is clear that that is true. Christ's death and resurrection is reproduced in the person who believes. So Colossians 2, 12 and 13, Buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. And then in Romans 6, verse 3, Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. So those two verses, all of us who were baptized in a Mennonite church had these statements made to us at the time of baptism. Then 1 Peter 3.21 is up here, I believe. Baptism now saves us, not the removal of filth from the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God. Uh, <clears throat> baptism will save you, like Noah and his family were saved by the ark through water. Peter's statement is not teaching baptismal regeneration. I don't think it is, but it is teaching that in water baptism, when the new convert expresses a clear conscience toward God, the saving activity of God's grace is present. We may not be able to describe exactly how it's present, the mechanics of it, or whatever, but I believe that's what these verses teach that God does a spiritual, invisible operation inside a person connected to their faith in Christ, and Christ is present uh, at the time of baptism, working this death and resurrection, as he is also, Christ is also present by the Holy Spirit doing this throughout life, day by day. That is true. So these verses teach that the person who identifies with Jesus' death and experiences a death to sin and a resurrection to life because of action performed by the Holy Spirit inside the person whether at the time of conversion or at the time of water baptism. That's what they're teaching. This is what happens. Something mysterious goes on during water baptism that symbolizes and communicates God's gracious, saving presence and work. In other words, I'll try again. I'm saying that water baptism is more than a physical ceremony and that something spiritual is going on in the person because of this ceremony 
even though we do not know how to explain the mechanics of it. Okay, the Lord's Supper, communion. You have John 6, 1 Corinthians 11, statements in the Gospels that Jesus makes. In, uh, in John 6, Jesus says, Eat my flesh and drink my blood. I do not believe Jesus is instituting the Lord's Supper in John 6, but I do believe he is saying that the person who fellowships with him partakes of and is sustained by Christ's body, death, and Christ's blood, life. So the scripture says, the scriptures that say, take eat, this is my body and this is my blood, are saying the same thing. They are saying that the body, blood, and blood life of Christ are available to us and sustain us and in our times of fellowship with Christ, and as we partake of the Lord's Supper, we experience the sustaining and redeeming presence of Christ. This is what we are called to remember. That the risen Christ is sustaining us by his death and life, and during the Lord's Supper we are fellowshipping with and partaking of Christ and experiencing his grace. This is happening because the mysterious and miraculous work of the Holy Spirit makes Christ present, even though we do not, do not know how to explain the mechanics of it. And, and I want to be clearly understood that what I'm saying is that God is doing something in these ordinances, sacraments, activities that we do not uh, no, have language to describe or the mechanics or the metaphysics, whatever the word should be. So my summary, I've tried to be transparent and tell you what I understand to be uh, historically and biblically true, and you are free to respond uh, this morning. We don't have time, maybe, but this evening in members' meeting, if you want to bring it up or in private. And I assure you that I'm not trying to change any of our practices, but I am trying to help us think about and experience these practices in a way that is more in harmony with history and Scripture. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for this day. And this opportunity to be with you and your people. And you understand all of these things that we've talked about. I've talked about uh, what is true about all of them. And I pray that you would give us wisdom in our thinking. Uh, work, Lord, to draw us into deeper faith, deeper obedience, uh, deeper fellowship with you and your people and growth. Bless us in all of these ponderings. Uh, make us a blessing to each other. And thank you. Amen.